The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. We've just seen the end of Fashion Week, the annual fashion trade fair that spills over into media and the social pages where designers traditionally showed their following year's seasons collections to buyers, but now where the time between showing and buying gets smaller and smaller, with in-season shows, installations, dinners and events. Behind many of the shows, unflappable in a week with a lot of potential flap, is a man you will often find running the seating arrangements. His name is Murray Bevan. He runs one of the best and biggest fashion PR companies, Showroom 22. With clients like Karen Walker Sunglasses, Adidas Originals and 27 Names, his team are so good they look after not just their own shows, but many of the key ones across the week. He's seen the change in the industry and the growth of some of our biggest local brands, including his own. Moving into a large space, offering image-making studio space and taking on international clients like David Jones and even retail developments like Commercial Bay. Joining us to talk the journey from one guy and a cell phone to a team supporting more than 45 brands is Murray Bevan of Showroom 22. G'day, thanks for joining us. Hey Simon, thanks for having me. Hey, so tell me about how you came to start the agency. Which famous local designer were you working with? So I kind of stumbled into fashion. Uh, I didn't really have much fashion sense as a kid. My mum used to make my clothes and pleated shorts for the local dance at intermediate school was about as fashionable as I got. So I left school and studied architecture, actually. And it was while I was there that my sister, who was working for Karen Walker in her retail stores, she said, look, we need someone to come in and help out with some jobs around school holiday time. Karen and Mikhail have said, we need someone like Scooter from the Fraggles. And my sister's hand shot up and she goes, I know the guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so there I was thrust into this world that I had no idea about, which was actually the best, best part. I had no idea what I was getting into, and I just met Karen and Mikhail. They were good people. They gave me some easy jobs, and away I went. And it just snowballed from there, and as I grew through intermediate, uh, sorry, through architecture school, I would you know, go into the office for half a day, a full day, a day and a half, grew to two days. I'd help Karen and Mikhail at their house out in Swanson in the summer. We planted trees, and... I think I remember putting a big pile of gorse in their um, compost and that was a really bad thing to do and had to get, had to get cut out the next summer. Um, 
anyway, it, it just grew from a really authentic friendship, I think, more than this love of fashion. And I didn't know what I was doing. And, and then eventually Karen said, come work for me, be my PA. So then I really fell into the middle of it. And what did that involve, being um, the PA for Karen Walker? And what year was that? So this was, uh, I believe, 1999, um, November I started. So I'd left architecture school. Karen sat me down in their office and said, look, a little birdie's told me that you're going to take a year off. I was in my third year at architecture school. And I was, my, I'd, I'd got a D on my final studio paper. It was the only thing I'd failed, but it was the, a sign that I was just not quite concentrating and I, you know, I was losing motivation. So she said, come and work for me, refresh yourself, take yourself way out of architecture, do something that you, you're not familiar with and just earn a bit of money, go back and finish your studies next year. And that was the plan. So I just jumped in there first day, and I still tell this to my staff these days, first day I got there, Karen gave me a page and a half typed to-do list, all of things I'd never, ever done before. I didn't know from at 10.30 I want this coffee because I've got a meeting and then so-and-so, I've got to pick up this from the shop and I need this delivered to the store and I need to book my travel. I'm going to Sydney to see our PR agency. And it was a whole lot of stuff that I was really excited but extremely nervous and, and, and quite you know un- uncertain if I could get anything done. Typical young 20-year-old guy. And anyway, it just snowballed from there and I picked up more responsibilities and as... I think because I was a little bit luckier that I'd come into the business as a bit of a friend, definitely not a threat, and definitely not someone who was overawed by fashion and just kind of knew knew where he was. Um, I think Karen and Mikhail kind of, it was an easy relationship. They could get me to do stuff, not a problem. You know, Muzz, can you come in on the weekend help out? Absolutely. You know, and also if I wasn't needed, I didn't take it to heart. Um, yeah, and it was it was a really good journey. And even, um, you, you, you know, if we're, we're talking kind of 18-odd years ago, uh, big 18, 19 years ago. Yeah, 18 um, and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, even then, Karen Walker was a big international operation, wasn't mm. it? Like sh- showing it. New York Fashion Week, big operations in Australia. That's a, a, an, an amazing place to get a feel for, like, global fashion uh, yeah. from New and Zealand. To be really honest, I don't think, looking back at that 18 and a half years, I I don't know how lucky I was where I am now to have started there. Um, you'll think this is silly, but I was watching um, The Devil Wears Prada on the weekend. I kind of thought, I haven't seen that movie for a while. Fashion Week's just ended. Maybe I'll just watch that just to make myself kind of relax, maybe even put me to sleep. And there's this line in there where this young worker who's come into the office, you know, she's told if you work one year in this job, you'll get a job in, at any other magazine in fashion in, in New York or whatever. And I kind of thought, I, was, I thought there's not many other places I could have cut my teeth that I could then still be saying with pride 18 and a half years later, that's where I started. I can still call Karen and Mikhail friends. They came to my wedding. We still pop round to their house for a cup of tea on a Sunday afternoon. You know, it's really genuine. And there's been a lot of businesses come and go since then. And yeah, back then, you're right. She was, she had just, you know, her and three other brands had, were making waves overseas, Hong Kong, London. They were paving the way for new designers. Madonna had just worn Karen Walker's pants at the MTV Music Awards, and we were selling those like hotcakes. Um, yeah, it was exciting. And, and the, the unfortunate thing, I think, for me, the only downside is that I didn't have perspective. I couldn't stand back and see 
that business for what it was because I was right in this in the middle of the hurricane, you know. What led you to decide to go and start your own fashion PR consultancy? And that was really, you know, I don't want to make you sound like you're 100, but that was very early on in the days of kind of having specialist fashion PR shops. Yeah, and the journey then, you know, I, I'd, I'd really worked myself to the bone at Karen's and I think I got to the point where I thought, actually, I need to tap out of this. You know, I was at work until 10 o'clock on a Friday night and then I'd be at there 8.30 in the morning delivering stock on a Saturday morning. And I loved it, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's funny to say this, but I don't remember the moment where I said, Hey, I need to get, I need to do the showroom thing. I, kn- I definitely remember everyone told me it wouldn't work. I remember the woman who was the marketing manager at Zambezi told me the industry is not big enough. Everyone does PR in house. It won't work. And I thought, I didn't think, well, I'll prove you wrong, but I did think in my gut, I said, you know, I know the model of how this works. I've seen it in Sydney. Sydney's not that different to here. It's just bigger. I've seen it in New York. Sure, lots bigger, but fundamentally, same processes, same model. And I just went out there and hired a space on High Street and paid rent month by month, grabbed a desk from home, got a gateway PC, <laughs> and away I went. And yeah, I, you know, I had to work the phones at Mercury Energy in the evening to pay the bills. You know, it, was, it wasn't easy. What was the model that you were trying to put into action? So the way that we work is that we basically, we rent real estate in our showroom to designers who either don't want to do what we do, don't like doing it, or don't have the context to do it. Often that the last one means they're out of Auckland and most of the fashion media exist here. So what we said is, we'll do the hard work for you. I've got lots of contacts from working from Karen. I, I, I like you know, building up brands and I like the energy of fashion and I want to stay in it because I think I'm quite good at it and I've kind of got a got a taste for it. So it was interesting. The first ones and, you know, springs to mind a, a brand called Satori, a menswear brand, which was run by Bob Nelson. Um, he was one of the first guys that came to me. Another brand um, from Christchurch um, called Tango, which was uh, run by two women now that that brand has gone. But they, again, out of Christchurch, they just wanted to be put about in Auckland. They didn't know how to do it. It's often you get these designers who they've got big vision, but not no idea in a bad way, but, but they, they truly don't know how to get there. So they look at us these days, as they did back then, to go, as Malaika from Tango said, can you make us into Karen Walker? <laughs> to which my polite response was, no, I can't. Uh, you've got to have a good idea. But I'll do my best, you know. So away we went. And what does that involve? So acting as kind of a a showroom and PR agency, why do you need to rent space in your showroom? So people rent a rack, basically. They, they get real estate, they get some racks, hangers, wall space, you know, they can bring in tables, chairs, whatever, and they can create a bit of a mini... Um, sort of scene for their product often it's not overly branded because we we try and um sort of let the product do the talking but stylists and uh, fashion editors celebrities people come to us and use the product and they put it out into magazine editorial they wear our gowns and and product and suits on red carpets Um, we dress people for for charity fashion shows so there's this myriad options of how do I get my product out into the world that isn't advertising, 
but it is credited and people will understand what I'm doing and see me and see my product and create a desire, a desire and a demand for my product that will then trickle back into, into making a sale for me. And when, once you have a, a busy showroom with lots of high quality clients, I guess it's easy to get the uh, editors and the um, influencers and the well-known people through the door. But how did you get started? Mm. So did you did, starting off with um, Tango and Satori, I mm. imagine, um, with no offence to them, mm. that, that people weren't beating their parts to their door? Like, oh, how do you build a business like that? 100% correct. And a lot of them said to me, so do you have Karen's product in the showroom? And I said, no, 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 because they, they would say, oh, you're Murray from Karen Walker. That's what that's how I was known. You know, no no previous fashion pedigree to, to stand, to fall back on, you know. So, yeah, you're totally right. I had these new brands. Juliet Hogan was one of my next first ever, you know, brands. And she'd just won this scholarship with Karen to go to New York and study at Parsons. So she was she was guided by Tim Gunn from Project Runway. So she comes back in and she's got this range of about 12 items, one of which I'll never forget was a cotton sweat, hooded sweatshirt with sequins sewn on the back of it. And, you know, she's come so far now. But, you know, it, it was... It was tough. It was the age of press releases. It was the age of fax machines. Very little email and dial-up at best. So I had to try and get information out there, you know, quickly and efficiently to these people who really didn't want it. So I, you know, for about the first year, I was really shoving stuff down people's throats in the nicest possible way that they probably didn't really think that they needed. But what I think that proved to them is that I could make their job a little bit easier by filling in spaces. So they went straight for Trelease, Zambezi, uh, Karen, Kate, you know, all the all those big ones that that manage their PR in house. And they would get their cover gowns, they would get their big editorial moments, and then they'd say, you know what, we kind of need a, some stripy knitwear, or we kind of need some filler stuff. Uh, and then we got Glassons, and Glassons was amazing for us because it did fill every single space in any media that wanted it. And they weren't discerning. They just said, get us out there, put our name about. You know, we want our brand in the media. So once we did that, then the penny dropped with these guys from the media. They thought, okay, now you're a means to an end. You can help us. And we were very, very fast. We could get information from A to B extremely quickly. And they didn't have to ask twice. So that's, I think, then they said, right, well, the model works. Thanks very much. You've helped us out. What else have you got? And when did you know it was working? Was that when you picked up kind of Glassons as a big listed company? That's a, that's a, a a big deal. And then along the way, you've also picked up some um, some really big international names. Your 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 Lispecs, your Adidas's, uh, mm. Levi's. You know, how, how, how did you know it was working? Well, I think one of the there's probably three three moments. One was when we started to get approached by Australian brands who'd heard about us and we'd been endorsed and recommended. And I thought, okay. Now we're talking. Now we've got, you know, Nicola Finetti from, from Melbourne and we had uh, Cohen and Sabine come in from Sydney. And these brands that I that were beyond my wildest dreams, I never thought we'd sign them. And then you're right, it was Glassons, you know, and Mikhail Gurman was working for Publicist Mojo and they were a client and he said, I know Muzz, I know what he can do, you guys need this. It's a good filler, a, apart from all your big TVCs and things, you need to get out there into PR. So that was a big deal. And... Yeah, I suppose from that, when it's when it kind of snowballed and when we had, you know, Karen was doing some work with the Breast Cancer Research Trust and we got that project, which was just a one-off thing, and, you know, the media really started to come back. It was kind of like, okay, this is this is working. And then the third, I suppose, was, was not quite when I knew it was working because it didn't quite work, 
But I pitched for Levi's when I was about 24. The only, I was the only person in my company. I had no employees. I still had my gateway PC and dial-up internet. And they, vis- they came over from Melbourne. And three of their executives turned up in my office. And there I was on my own <laughs> playing some like Pharrell or something on my, on my stereo to set the mood. And they said, so is your team out to lunch? And I said, no, it's just me. And they were sitting there. I had no boardroom, of course, no meeting table. It was just kind of three plastic chairs in the middle of a 75 square meter room. And they said, so what, is this it? And I'd got down to the last three agencies in the country just based on the idea. And they said, I'm really sorry, we can't, <laughs> we can't employ you. you. You won't be able to pull off the scale of work that we need. And I actually thought I could because I didn't think it's not rocket science what we do. You know, it's not one of my ex-employees, has, her husband's a surgeon. You know, we always used to joke, it's PR, not ER. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, no, I can do this. I know everyone in New Zealand. I know these editors. I know the stylists. I know the channels to get into. I know the timelines. I can get it done, you know. And they just looked around. They were like, no, we, it's, it's a trust thing. We can't see a company this small repping our brand. And now we have Levi's. And um, that was, you know, that was 14 years ago. And we've had Levi's for about four years. The marketing manager came in and shook things up and said, you've been recommended. We don't need to come and see you. She signed me up on the phone from the airport. It was great. So two different, two different stories. 10 years of building and yeah. and over that time of um, picking up these clients and changing it you've added a few different things to the mix with um, uh, the, the PR of um, products uh, beauty products and the like and also um, adding studio and image making to it mm. I mean that that's kind of you know uh, if you look at kind of the changes in fashion the whole of Instagram being filled with images and products being sent to people that seems to be a pretty savvy move yeah well, to be honest, the, the, the idea started in my mind probably about five or six years ago. And to be honest, it was started from me wanting to avoid boredom. Um, not that the industry bores me, but I think, you know, like anyone who's uh, sort of up on a, on a certain, at a certain speed with their business, they want a little bit more. We never settle for where the bar is. We always want to put it up. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be incredible one day to have this, a space that was big enough that you had a shared working space, maybe you have a cafe at the front, maybe even a florist, you've got a photo studio at the back, you've got people coming in having board meetings and doing sales. And, and anyway, we, we were looking for space last year. Our lease was up in, our, in a 258 square meter studio, which is big for even and expensive for, for, for me. And we saw the old nude um, furniture showroom down on Beaumont Street and it was it was available for for rent and it's 500 square meters and it's a beautiful space and it's just the kind of feel we wanted but uh, kind of pricey so I had to make it work and I thought well first of all we can get some other interesting characters in to help with the space so we've got a uh, an art director and a stylist who works on site with us we've got a team of photographers and videographers that that rent space from us and then, of course, we, we chucked in two walls in a corner and made a 70-square-meter studio, which isn't just for our clients, but you can book it. You know, We've got a production company that works across the hallway, so they've been in there shooting videos. Jupiter Project did some promo shots. We had a really amazing shoot in there last week with Huffer. Um, you know, we've had sales in there. We've had brand days in there. And it's it's really putting a smile on my face because it's not just the thought of... Um, you know, kind of getting bigger, but it's 
I just love things to be happening and I want to be a connector and I want to say, you know, to DFS or something, you know, well, you're coming in from Hong Kong, you want to put on this party and they're like, we need a stylist for a show and we want a photographer and we just don't know who to talk to. And we figured them out with about three or four different contractors and wrapped it all up in one big project. So it's already working. It's it's community and it's what the business of fashion referred to last year as um, inter-industry um, kind of connectivity. We've got to be helping each other out. We can't be fighting against each other. You must have seen over the last uh, 18 odd years that the big waves come and change fashion media like the rise of bloggers that everyone was you know thinking was the the end of media and now looks like you know quite a quaint kind of funny thing because the number of bloggers and their influence was quite kind of small compared to the number of influencers and their influence mm. which seems to be um, you, you know an enormous wave of change in mm. the in the industry yeah and the blogger thing I suppose was really it that came about because of the internet and broad broad brushstrokes Um no one ever did it in New Zealand as well as Stacey Gregg with Runway Reporter. And I wouldn't even say she was a blogger. She was a, she was a true editor at, in a website. But yeah, you, you had Isaac Hinder-Miller from Isaac Likes. You had Emma Gleeson at Ragpony. And they were kind of our typical bloggers, Catherine Lowe, etc. Now with Instagram, I suppose you're totally right. It's easy to get there. And we talked before about the, the hockey stick curve where, you know, one day you're not an influencer. The next day, apparently you are. And the thing that, that I think grinds a lot of people's gears is that you can say that you, you are an influencer. People come to us and say, I'm an influencer. I want a seat at the show. And that, for me, is just just doesn't sit well with me. And we, deal, we do a lot of work with a very smart woman in Sydney called Holly Garber at a PR agency called Go Lightly. And she said to me last year, she said, we're more interested in people of influence rather than influencers. So she's just started an offshoot of her agency called People, where they represent art gallerists and artists and, you know, writers and chefs and, and people that actually have genuine communities. You know, like, you know, you've got a great sweater on today. I love the brand. And I'm far more influenced by that than someone who's going to tell me and hashtag sponsored at the end of it, you know. So... And I, th- I think we're getting to this critical part of that moment where a lot of people are going to say, um, I don't believe it. But it is, uh, I mean, and I think um, Holly's move towards having influences that are actually influential is quite, mm. it's quite interesting. But it is such a change where you've gone from um, the traditional gatekeepers of being an editor for one of the existing magazines. And so quite controlled to now having all of these people of um, you know some of them dubious influence but lots of people um, just disintermediated you know directly mm. talking to their, their fans and their mm. their followers and the people that care about them um, and that yeah that, that must be an amazing logistical challenge when mm. you're running a PR showroom <laughs> yeah it, it is but we had a situation a few weeks ago where um, one of the people that we dealt with had um, maybe misrepresented themselves a little bit in the reason for borrowing some product and had done a couple of other things which, you know, and we weren't trying to get too bitchy about it, but we do work for clients. They don't come to us and see this big room full of clothes and just we don't kind of fawn all over them. This is a business. We have to be smart. And so we we just said, look, our dealings with you for the moment are just going to be put on hold. We're 
still trying to figure out where this person kind of sits in the landscape. And for that, we need time. And for that, we need a proper presentation. So we've asked them to come back and actually present themselves to us with their statistics, with their reach, with their impressions, with everything that you'd expect from a from a quote unquote traditional or normal media like a magazine. So we want to, if these guys want to do this and want to be taken seriously, we will take them seriously. But you've got to come and actually pitch to us and say, why Why do I want to wear Ingrid Starnes? Why does that brand suit me? Why am I a good fit for Karen Walker eyewear? Why should Adidas Originals be giving me some free trainers? Why should I be dressed in Levi's? Why should I be flown to Sydney by David Jones for the launch of their collection? So I don't get overawed by that because I didn't come from fashion. This whole thing is, I can, it's a take it or leave it kind of business with all due respect to the people that I work for. But, you know, I'm not like gushing over this kind of stuff. It's a business for me and we have to be very pragmatic. And I think maybe pragmatism and perspective in this new digital world and this overawed kind of click-like situation that we're in um, is maybe moving at a pace that most of us if we actually said do we want to be here do we like this what would we prefer to do I think many of us in the industry would say well let's just actually take a step back for a minute you know it's getting a bit full on. And there is that change in Fashion Week as well which is something um, just recently wrapped up that's changed a lot over the years where it had been the traditional gatekeepers, the buyers for the big stores and the editors of the big magazines as the lead but as it stopped being such a sales event it became much more about the immediate publicity of the influential or well-known or celebrity kind of people in there and and has that, has that reached kind of a, a peak as well maybe? I, I imagine the mm. old model has to change a lot. Well yeah, I think you've used the word gatekeepers twice and I think if anything and it's not that 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 we you know we we could say that in a way we're a gatekeeper to the media dealing with a, a brand's product we will open the door literally or say yes you can borrow it or no fashion week used to be one of the biggest gatekeepers of experiencing that kind of event and 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 runway shows and that kind of thing um, all of those walls are being challenged and broken down and like you said, it used to be this one of the places where if you wanted to get sales en masse, uh, it was kind of your only option. And we had many, many, many clients who experienced phenomenal success at Fashion Week. You know, Ingrid, Juliet Hogan, Catherine Wilson, these guys coming in, especially first or second years, it really did the business for them, literally. And... And I suppose anyone's curve like that, especially in New Zealand, you're going to kind of get up on a certain plateau and then and then kind of plateau. And pe- certain people stick around for the press and the image, uh, and others try and just you know kind of grind away and get more sales. But you're totally right. Fashion Week will it, it, well it, it has adapted. It will continue to adapt. It it must adapt in order to stay alive, and I know they've got some amazing plans. Um, not only changing their location for next year, but I think they will have to really consider why they exist. And you know, again, that business of fashion story that we both read yesterday says that um, some influencers are saying, "Well, if I want to be taken seriously and make money as a fashion influencer, I don't have to go to Fashion Week anymore," and that's true. And that's, you know, nothing, no disrespect to any Fashion Week around the world, let alone New Zealand Fashion Week. But these guys are figuring out they can make a play for image and um, impressions and reach that on their own. You know, they can, if they want to, they can buy more reach. 
but they don't need to be there in front of a gaggle of street style photographers in all, in order to you know get out and about and and for that fashion weeks all around the world must uh, reinterrogate why they exist Australia is a few years ahead of where New Zealand is in a lot of things and you know where your inspiration was as well from seeing that the showroom idea could work and for many years New Zealand's actually been kind of insulated by how small it is in that um the, the big international H&Ms and Zaras have been active and um, making you know huge changes to the Australian fashion industry for far longer than they have here. Um, and now we're just seeing all of those coming. How far ahead is Australia and what, what will we see next here? Um, well, how far ahead is Australia? I suppose you're right. They, I think because only because of the size of their market they get... Um, they get other bigger ideas and bigger businesses coming to them. So Topshop, H&M, Zara, ASOS, etc. Um, they also have a lot of standalone luxury brands that we don't have here. And I don't know if we'll, unless our population really, really grows and grows, I don't know if we'll actually see them anytime soon. You know, the, you know, we've got Louis Vuitton, a couple of stores. We've got DFS, which has got an amazing range of stores, within their location in Auckland, but you've got Dior, Prada and Gucci downtown in Queen Street. But, you know, I couldn't rattle off to you how many brands we don't have. I mean, David Jones and Wellington have got things like Balenciaga, Valentino, Christian Lobaton, but they don't have standalone stores or even really concessions. Um, although a few of them do on the ground floor, but Aussie, I suppose through sheer numbers can afford to say, and, and, by the way, those the brands are, are really enjoying some pretty incredible sales and business in Australia. They can afford to say it's it's worth us justifying a three hundred square meter store like that that uh, new Acne store in King Street in Sydney. It's huge, and I went in there the other day. I was the only person there, and I was thinking, how can how can this be justified? But the thing is, it's not it's not like a top shop or an H&M environment where you've got 600 people in there at once and everything's going crazy. You can have one person in there who'll drop 10 grand in five minutes, you know. And that's a very strange reality for most New Zealand designers to consider. And I don't really think we've we've truly got wealth like that on scale in New Zealand that would make those same moves that Australia has been able to undertake and those same luxuries that they have been able to experience they just won't turn up here anytime soon because of the scale of our population. And to be honest, that top 0.5% of people who shop there, they'll travel to shop. Mm. They'll go just pop over to Sydney for the weekend and shop there. And I think a lot of those big luxury stores uh, will just will acknowledge that and they'll never run down here. It kind of feels like a lot of those, the real luxury ones that you mentioned that are here, they, they don't feel much, I, I don't know, the, the Louis Vuitton and the the Gucci and the Dior and the the what have you like um it, it they fit you know if you'd told me ten years ago that Lower Queen Street that was such a mess of souvenir stores and kind of businesses going in and out of business would have some of the world's biggest luxury stores there but it doesn't feel like they're serving a local um you know traditional New Zealand clientele it feels like a lot of their custom is actually money that travels visitors mm. to the country or short term visitors well you'd be surprised I mean um. Saying they're not traditional New Zealand customers is right, and um, our customers have changed dramatically in the last ten years. So Robert Niwa, who's the GM of um, Louis Vuitton or store manager of Louis Vuitton and Queen Street, he said to me when they got in the Supreme collaboration, 
He said the first customers that came knocking on his door the next morning to ask when it would arrive were four young teenage Kiwi boys. So to say that a luxury customer is a certain type of person or gender or age or wealth anymore is out the window. Everyone through Instagram and social media can see this stuff. They can see their idols of music and sports wearing it and they just want it now. So, you know, the traditional New Zealand customer that would shop Gucci or Louis Vuitton, um, yeah, they would they would travel and they would be going to the Venice Film Festival or Sydney or whatever and they'd go and, and that would be a treat. I don't think luxury is a treat anymore. I think it's everywhere all the time. And Gucci and those kinds of brands are reaping the financial rewards of that. And it's, it will, will be very, very interesting to see how they sustain their level of luxury and exclusiveness and demand in the, few, in the next few years as things just get quicker and quicker and quicker. What advice do you give to entrepreneurs keen to start out in the business of fashion? Well, we give advice almost to everyone who asks. So I'm not say, sitting here saying that I'm some guru, but if anyone had offered me advice and, and you know Karen and Mikhail have constantly given me advice and so have their network of people, they've been very kind. So you know we always give advice and I think the, the real thing, two things I suppose, have, have a good idea that's relatively unique and then stick to it. So, you know, the sticking to it thing, we, could, we definitely can say that our idea is unique. But the sticking to it has, I suppose, been the challenge of many, many other people in New Zealand trying to do what we started doing. Not to say that, you know, definitely I'm not the only person that can do it. So, you know, there's been many other showrooms pop up and almost all of them have shut down. Or they've expanded into fashion and then they've collapsed back into doing what they normally do. So... The fact that we've just stuck to our game, I think, has made us even more of a specialist in 2018. And I think now is the age of specialists. And there's a lot of people out there doing PR and marketing, you know. And I think a lot of them think that it works as it did a decade ago. You know, you write a good press release and send it to the Herald. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's one way, but there's also 500 other ways of doing it these days. And how do you define success? Yeah, I read that question and it's a big one. How do I define success? Well, for me, I think I've had uh, the the happiness and the luxury of being able to be a big part of my um, sister's kids' lives, especially my nephew, Maya. Um, Success for me is not all about business. It's definitely not all about money. This is not a very lucrative business to be in, but it's extremely rewarding because I feel that I'm a part of the journey and often the successes, even the small ones of our of our clients. And it and I think I get probably more joy out of seeing some of our smaller brands succeed. So success for me is 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 happiness and and a and a little bunch of small rewards every Christmas that I can look back on and say you know that that you know we for example that uh, that rapper designer who was here with Huffer last week we he walked through the showroom on Friday uh, with his team and and we were able to give him some Kiwi product to take away with him from some other brands and he was so uh, grateful and so genuine and then he we saw on Instagram over the weekend that he wore some of it in Las Vegas at a show you know and the the scale of that achievement 
isn't what excites me. It's the fact that he was there. We looked him in the eye. We shook his hand. We understood he was a good person. And he was just trying to have fun in the world. And we said, you know what? Here's something else that you've never seen before that'll put a smile on your face, even just for a day. And he was like, you know what, man? Thank you very much. That's really cool. You know? And those moments really are the ones that that define success for me because we were we were the catalyst to make something cool happen. That's so cool. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story. That's Murray Bevan of Showroom Twenty Two. Thanks for coming along. Thank you very much, Alice Weatherdale, for producing, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Business Is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.